Persuasive words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Bill, it seems like so long since we recorded this. Yeah, like five minutes ago. But <laughs> it's good. It's been I've, literally minutes. I was happy to be a guest on your on the Luxury Podcast with you. So yeah, that was great. It was um, I you know, not to toot our own horns, but I thought it was actually quite yeah. fun. Do I get paid for that? I just wondered. No. Special guest. No. Oh, okay. You get paid the same thing every other guest gets. In fact, I'll give you double what every other guest gets. All right, awesome. Because you're oh. a big draw. Well, thank you so much. You're a draw. And and I'm an expert now. You're an expert in a draw. An expert (laughs) draw. Maybe not an expert drawer. No, no. I I got bad grades in drawing. I'm not very good at it. But we're going to talk about preaching. We're going to talk about preaching. And so we were inspired. uh, You were inspired. Yeah. Well, (laughs) there's this book called Eight Hours or or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. And I I read this book. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I read this book quite quickly. And well, it should be if it, if, we're, if you're going to write sermons faster, then you should be able to to uh, to read it quickly. Yeah, I I actually can I confess something before we even start. <laughs> yeah, you're, you confessed last. Yeah, time, I did too. last time. Yeah, you, you didn't confess- give me the penance was well. It was uh, weak. It was a weak confession, and the penance was uh, appropriate. I, you know, I have an immediate aversion to books on preaching, so I just want you to know that. Uh, I do too. I, I yeah. there are a couple I like, and the ones that I like tend to be ones that are um, that are the most theoretical <laughs> and yeah. the least practical. And by that, I mean I don't mean like uh, obtusely abstract or anything like that. I mean that, that stuff that's like the most transferable. Yes. So. You, things that were where it, you're understanding how the Bible, uh, bibl- particular biblical passages are connected to the whole story of Scripture, which climaxes in Christ, and then how you do interpretive work, you know, and like, you, know, you know what actually is the difference between exegesis, theology, and and proclamation. Those sort of things. I tend I tend to find books like that much more helpful than how to books largely because how to books like the one we're about to talk about like they assume so much about context disposition right. gifting yeah. temperament like th- that that i just tend to think that they assume a kind of universality and scope that i think is is almost impossible for uh, for any kind of work of practical theology that's instructional at that level yeah you know what my favorite preaching book is manual the summa theologica <laughs> And the reason that there are a lot of regions that Summa's got right, but one of the reasons can you feel geekiest thing, the nerdiest thing you've said? Yeah, you have to feel sorry for the poor Dominicans. Because part of it was Thomas wrote that in order to help them with their pastoral care. (laughs) Can you imagine? So, okay, what do you what do you have for me here? Here, here's four four volumes of this. But anyway, no, I think Calvin's Institutes would be way more helpful in that regard, pastoral care. Yeah, probably, probably. It's also not written in the form of dissertation, <laughs> which I think is just not the easiest. Well, what you have to do is you have to read the answer first and go right, back. Yeah, yeah right. It's yeah. good printing for yeah adult Bible study with 
That's smart, Alex. <laughs> so this book by, by the way, I forgot the author's name. Let me, I want to credit this person here. Ryan Hughley. 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 And again, I, I am not, I, I think that, I don't want to be overly critical. I think this book would be very helpful for some people. And I think it's a, like, I think, and by that, I'm not saying those people that are morons or don't have it. No, I mean, I think, to, again, certain people temperamentally, uh, their rhythms, this would work really well. Right. And was, but it's called the eight hour, eight hours or less. And, and he's talking about how to write a sermon in eight hours or less. <laughs> <laughs> and my, it's really interesting too, because I, I, he has a very kind of brief thing on defining a faithful sermon. And it's pretty short. And that's actually, I think, almost one of the biggest things, you know, that and Princeton Seminary, for instance, they had to do a public issue sermon in a homiletics class. And somebody did a sermon about how, why Obamacare, why Jesus would have liked Obamacare. I thought that's the most absurd thing. And if I went to a church, if it was a visitor, and I heard that sermon, I'd never go back again. I wouldn't even call that a sermon. Like, so now again, people could disagree with you, but that's the point. Like, oftentimes with studying something like preaching, oftentimes people write a book and assume that everybody would think a sermon is the same thing. Like, right. like if you are preaching from the First Testament and don't mention Jesus, is it a Christian sermon? If it could have been preached, you know, in a in first synagogue, synagogue yeah. yeah, is it is it? And again, there are people that uh, Christians who would disagree on that. But I, so I think like. It, it, well, okay, you're, you're asking that rhetorically. You're not asking for an answer. Yeah, no, I'm not asking for. I, I mean, I know what I think about, but but these are there are loads of questions. Like, if no one's bored, is it a Christian sermon? <laughs> it's a sin to bore anybody with the gospel of yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, then there's a to lot of sinning. A lot of sinning. To goes paraphrase out, Jim Rayburn, the founder of Young Life. Well, I, I do. You know, it's an interesting. It's an interesting thing. I, I had a um, young pastor. You know, talk to me about, you know, struggling with the immigration issue. And he asked, well, how would you approach it in preaching? And I said, I, I would read the biblical text. And then said, well, then what would you do after you read the biblical text? I said, I would talk about the biblical text. And he looked at me. I said, listen, this is one issue you don't have to do much digging for. <laughs> Welcoming the stranger is a central theme of the Hebrew scriptures. And it certainly picked up in at least Hebrews, if not other places. And I said, the thing about it is when you have something, you know, if you let the text speak, then if they have trouble with the politics of the sermon, then they have to take it up with Jesus or God. And I think that's to me, um, you know, and I don't know initially who said this, uh, where I got this from. Um, and I don't think it's from my own imagination. I'm not, I don't think I'm that clever. But You're I, clever. But I think the sermon is like a sculpting, you know, like when a, a, a gifted sculptor already sees the figure in the stone and what he does is he just clears away <laughs> everything that's preventing the emergence of the figure and i think a good sermon is a person who helps clear away the clouds whether they be cultural exegetical language or whether they're the clouds that are in the room the confusion or the pain or whatever is going on in your community and your congregation a good sermon chisels away the things that keep you from seeing the central figure. And again, from a Christological perspective, that's going to be Christ, but uh, to see a meaning for the text for that person, for that congregation, for that time. I thought you were going to say the central figure. I alone can can deliver us from these realities. I alone. Okay, there we go. There, This no longer now is a pilot for a new show. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, so, so, this guy, so... Ryan Hughley here says, you know, he's got 
And again, I think this is like I don't want to be too critical, but I, I think it's I, I might. You don't come to praise Caesar; you come to bury. Yeah. Oh no, the other way around. I, 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 I don't come to praise this book; I come to bury this book. No, it, but for instance, he says on Monday, and he's pretty insistent: don't push up, develop your sermon frame. And so he talks about praying, discerning the text, figuring out what it means, reading some commentary, you know, looking at, and then he thinks that you you basically get the outline, one that's clear. And he says, you know, for instance, he preached a sermon on Luke 1, 26 through 38, and which he used Mary as an example of surrendering to God's will. And so this is what his frame looked like. His big idea was to serve God is to submit to his will. And three signs I'm surrendered to God's will. I desire God's approval over that of all others. I die to the to the need for all the details. And thirdly, I believe nothing is impossible for God. Now he talks about uh he says, yeah, this is the best sermon I've ever had, but it's it you know, it's it, it's clear. And he says, Imagine it had looked like this. And this is kind of his contrasting example. To be a servant of the most high God, like Mary, will mean laying down the things we want in order to do the things God wants us to do. That's his big idea. Then he says the you know, Point one is Mary was willing to be content with the approval of God on her life over the approval of everyone around. Two, Mary would have had questions, but she did not demand every detail before she chose to trust what Gabriel said. Th- third, Mary was willing to take God as words and uh, word and believe that there was nothing he could not do. And so he's just sort of saying, you notice how much more simple the first one is. And he, he's, he's thinking about clarity. I, I think, you know, there's something to this. I mean, he, he argues that if you have a really clear and simple frame by Monday, that the rest of the week... You're, you've got it. Like if you've got something memorable like that that you can mem- that that is re- you know you can recall it. Mm-hmm. It's going to help you organize things. It's going to help you know you when you see an example in the news or in your you know the, you know or in your congregation you'll be able to pull it in. Can I ask you what now? I think I'm I agree with you should have the text in your head on Monday morning. Yeah, or Monday during the day. My problem with having a framework is that there's a te- there could be a temptation to keep the text contained in that framework. Okay, now his three points from the uh, Annunciation are pretty straightforward. I mean, that's what he says there. He's just pretty much following yeah. the narrative. So that framework is something that the, na- the narrative itself brings out. That's okay, because his framework in that instance helps you attend to the text. But I would, I would, I think the only danger in having your three-point outline already or your three points on Monday is that to me, and you and I talked a little bit about this in terms of the amount of hours you spend on the sermon preparing it is less important than uh, the amount of time the text stays with you during the course of the week. Yeah, and in fairness to him, he said he's he looks at the Monday stage as like a two, at least two hours, where and most of it is looking at the text, writing out the text, you know, study like praying about it. Look, I mean, he he is trying to he he aspirationally does what I just said. Try, yeah, and then you could argue again. Different people uh, would, not, ar- yeah. would argue is this the right way to do that? But he he's at least trying for that. And then Tuesday, open the door. Uh, to finalize the sermon frame with a team in one hour. So I think with here, a team, um, uh, it's a group prep meeting. Like uh, I actually think this is re- okay. At a church, I part of a thing called the College of Preachers, which I think was actually very helpful. Mm. There was a group of people, some of which who were part of the teaching team, some of which that weren't. And we met every week, and we did. We read a book together. Every other book was usually something about preaching. Every other book was just a book about theology in general. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about how the sermon went from Sunday, last Sunday. And then we talked about the text f- 
with the person preaching. So, I mean, I think he's thinking something like that, where you've got these people that I I assume some of them are connected to your community, um, you know, worship, you know, people maybe on your worship team or people. Yeah. yeah. And they're election. I mean, there have been electionary groups forever. Different preachers get together. Not forever, because there wasn't always electionary. All right. I'm sorry. You took me literally. (laughs) So. Can't be forever. Right after, uh, right after the Council of January. (laughs) Around so around ninety five, seventy rabbis. <laughs> anyway, no, I I do think you know living with the text, and I used to, uh, you know, I'd have a weekly staff meeting, which was a theological discussion. And I had staff and often seminary interns, and you know a lot of different people part of this group. And I think there is something about again a theological discourse. I mean, one of the things that uh, that Raymond Brown. Uh, notices with Augustine that he was never alone. And so there's a sense— And preaching can be a really lonely process. Yeah, and I think the idea that, I mean, to me, if this is one other way of emphasizing that ministry is communal, I think that's a good thing. I I, um, Again, a lot of you out there are kind of alone. Those of you who are preachers are alone in your parishes. And I do think— it, it the, the the idea the principle of trying to have dialogue partners uh, in in your life. Um, now I know sometimes some spouses. This is a function of some marriages, which I think is great if that works. But the idea that uh, you know the the, tech, the the biblical texts were written sometimes by a community for a community. You know, even if you know we talk about our sacred text. Is by a community for a community, <laughs> and even Paul. Paul, we talk about Paul's letters, but to be accurate, um, every letter at least credits a co-author, if not yeah. more than one. Yeah. So, so I do think if the text comes to us in some levels as a discussion, you know, it's at least it's one or a group of people speaking to another group of people, then it makes sense that you know that there is a greater opportunity to hear what God is saying in the context of talking to people about text. I, I think that that's actually. That's actually a pretty good discipline to build into your life. It's a challenge, though. I mean, I think um, I think that point could almost be as discouraging as encouraging. Right. And again, this is these are my this is proof of the wider point I want to make. Like, I think that these are good, a good aspirational idea or good like the way that you've just listed a number of ways to get at what he's getting at. Right. And who knows if it works on Tuesday in your career? Who knows? You know that. Right. These are again what I think is so the 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 value of the book may be just kind of inspiring you to say okay are there a couple ideas in here that and how would they work in my context yeah yeah so I think that that yeah not just yeah Wednesday is sweat the intro and your milestone is to write in one hour an introduction that will grab people's attention now here's what he says a pastor once told me if you open strong hit your transition we're on Facebook Live aren't we yeah I should stop making expressions that's all right. <laughs> A pastor once told me, if you open strong, hit your transitions, and land the plane well, your sermon will take care of itself. And he says that what I found to be slightly more complicated than that, he was largely correct. Well, yeah, okay. Who, If you open strong, if you hit all the transitions well, and you conclude well, the sermon takes care of itself. Well, that was the whole sermon. <laughs> Doing this what you do, boys? You got to hit that line. You hit that line. You follow that tackle ball out right there, and you go. You go. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it 
because of the conversations you find here. Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, and Charlotte Donlan. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, he's saying spend an hour Wednesday thinking about the intro. And again, I think on one level, there's something to introductions, right? Like laying things out are, are, are important. But then, I mean, I, I've certainly gotten some of the best introductions in the shower on Sunday morning. Like where I've heard something on NPR that was incredibly powerful and it fit where, you know, sometimes or sometimes introductions uh, don't like, I, I think introductions can be effective in a variety of ways. Again, I'm not saying this is it's bad to spend a lot of time on the introduction or how you get into things. But I, I think that that to me seems at least contestable. And there's a danger. There's a danger in. All right. Do I need to be? You know, one of the things I find is my my sense of humor comes out kind of naturally. I don't plan to be funny frequently in a sermon. Now there'll be like sometimes there'll be a story in the Bible that strikes me as funny, or I might I might kind of an illustration that has some humor, particularly um, you know if it's a heavy topic. But um, I, you know I've been around preachers whose whose library is full of books of illustration. Now of course now you just go online to do that, and I think the temptation to be clever at the beginning. I, I think a good introduction serves the rest of the sermon. Or it helps you transition from whatever happened, you know, whatever your liturgy is. But I, I do think I'm with you. That can be a that can be a dangerous thing. And I've often, I've actually had really clever introductions. And whatever something happened on that morning, or however the service went, or even the readings strike me in a certain way, and I'm thinking. I'm. I have to lose the introduction. I've done that before. Uh, yeah, it's know. interesting. I think you and I talking about this. I heard Jerry Seinfeld was on the Howard Stern show a couple weeks ago, and, and was, where does where's where's where his church? Oh, well, I hopefully he'd be a synagogue <laughs> if he's attending. But I don't he he tends. he was talking about like how writing stand up material he thinks is like the hardest thing in show business, it, just because. If it's not brilliant, he says it's useless. And he and Stern are both agreed. But I, I don't think that that I think that's probably true about stand up comedy. I, I don't know if that's true for preaching. Like if it's not brilliant. So some of this, like the brilliant introduction stuff, I, I, I don't know. I think that. Yeah, I, 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 I remember sitting in a class at a seminary that remained nameless, listening to a preacher who remained nameless. And 
it was amazing. And the person next to me said, wow, that was amazing. I go, yeah. And then I go, do you know what he said? <laughs> and they couldn't. Not really. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that, that would be an example of more sizzle than steak, as they say. <laughs> so Thursday. Okay. What are we doing Thursday, Bill? <laughs> we're landing the plane. And what we're trying to do is to write a Christ-centered conclusion in one hour. So you got the frame. You got the... Now, again, this is, this is one of those things that... I think we're mixing our metaphors here. We, it, it, we start out with a frame, now we're landing a plane. Right, we've gone from, from carpentry <laughs> to aeronautics. So, I mean, again... This and then is, on Sunday, we hit it out of the park. This is one of those things, again, where like it, it assumes that the process works in such a way that you get the intro and the conclusion, and then the the body is shaped that way. And I just think I could think of some other ways to do it that yeah. are probably... Well, can I speak to you as an experienced uh, homilics professor? <laughs> You have taught how many? I, I, I've taught I've taught one homily to, right. to Buddhists. To Buddhists. <laughs> no, no, no. Which does that make your advice better or worse? I I think it makes it as if two converging things come together as one, but do not exist. I'm sorry, that's the closest Buddhist thing I could come up with. On the, that on sounded the like the sound of one hand clapping. And one hand clapping. I wanted to avoid that one. Everyone knows that. I love that one. Well, first of all. I have given lectures. I've been I've given guest lectures at other uh, seminary classes about preaching, and uh, particularly preaching in the context of crisis, disasters, and uh, and tragedies and things like that, which unfortunately I've had too much experience at. But when I got asked to teach this class, and they had a tradition, it's a it's a Reformed Buddhist group out of Korea, the one Buddhist institutes where I preach, and they have a tradition of inviting Christian uh, professors to teach their preaching class. And it really made me totally <laughs> kind of read. I had to think about, well, what is it that I've been doing all these years? So it was a great exercise for me. And also, how do you translate this in terms of the whole sermonic process to a group of people who are dealing with both uh, a holy text and a, and a, and a holy technique? Uh, so it's not totally dissimilar. And you know, the thing that I come back to <clears throat> Again, again, I've told my students this in the past, my Christian staff and things like this, is I think that there are, there are, you know, there are multiple hearers and there are multiple uh, speakers when it comes to a sermon. And I, I think one of the things is I, I always try to preach the sermon to myself. And that's part of my check on terms of authenticity. Do you ever convert yourself? I'm trying. I'm trying to get there closer, man. I'm, I, I press on. I have not yet reached it, but I press on. I, so I think to me that that's the beginning of authenticity. In other words, what does this text really say to me? And try not to get jump to the temptation of, boy, these people need to hear this, or, boy, I was really good last week and I need to be that good, or, boy, last week's sermon blew it. In other words, what is God saying to me in my own walk as I, as I you know, look at this text? <clears throat> and then what's going on in the world? what's going on in the life of my congregation, but always through the lens of what's going on in the particular text. And then I think the most important thing for any preacher to do is to, is to find their own voice and to be who they are in the pulpit. Um, and that doesn't mean that we get up there and share all our, our stuff. I, that's not what I think is appropriate. But that, for me personally, how I talk in the pulpit is not that different from how I'm talking to you all right now. Yeah, I think that is so key. One of the preachers I, I thought was a guy I who's a lot, I listened to a lot of his sermons, and, and his preaching voice was nothing like how he interacted with people during the week. It, the, the, it was it, it was it was Reverend Lovejoyish, you know what I mean? And and and, and yeah. I think that 
in our culture, inauthenticity. I mean, this is why I don't think manuscript preaching quite works anymore. I mean, some people pull it off, but because when people are reading on TV, they don't look like they're reading. They've yeah, got a teleprompter or screen. So, like, yeah. so the you know, in Jonathan Edwards' day, when people are getting slain in the spirit, when he's reading, it's different. I think there's well, people a different... knew how to listen to written words. People could listen. People knew how to listen to long poetry. They, they were used to listening to epic things because it was a more, you know. Um, audio culture, but we 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 are a much more visual culture now. Yeah, I agree with you on that. That doesn't mean you know, I, you know. I write. I tend to have a very brief outline. I always have had a very brief outline. I mean, I cut my teeth. You know, I had given a couple hundred youth talks before I I went to seminary, and, and I talked to adults as well. And you know, I like the written manuscript uh, because I like language. But I find my written sermons. They don't preach as well, and I think there's a it's a different discipline. The written word is a different thing than the spoken word. Now, I do think you know precision in language is is important, and I think particularly if you're going to say something that has has weight uh, or you want to make sure it's clear, then I think that's the kind of thing you write down. Again, when I I don't know what you were taught in your preaching class, but. Um, the presupposition in part was that you would spend five hours or so memorizing your manuscript, that there was never, if you were going to go buy a manuscript, uh, you were going to memorize that and in some levels perform it. Um, the only problem is I don't know any parish pastors actually doing parish work that has that kind of time. By the way, something that you said that made me think, um, that, you know, in, in Jack Kerouac's Rules for t- spontaneous prose. Mm-hmm. He has like these thirty-one, and one of the things he says is tell the true story of the world in interior monologue. Hmm, that's interesting. And I think that's a. I mean, he also says uh, number three on the list is try never get drunk outside your own house, <laughs> which is a good one. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll post it. The, his thirty-one rules for spontaneous prose are, awesome. are just amazing. Yeah. Uh, so okay, so what are we? We're getting to Friday now, by the way. Oh, we're not done yet. So <laughs> Friday. <laughs> Fill in the frame. Complete preaching notes in two hours or less. Can I ask a question? When, when that, what day does he take off? Saturday. Does he work on Sundays? He does. He doesn't do... It, it goes from Friday... <laughs> That's a joke. You work... Yeah, it's, right. You're preaching on right. Sunday. Yeah. yeah. It goes from Friday to Sunday, though. So, but... Now, he does say this, which I think is interesting. He says the best sermons explain the text, illustrate the text, and apply the text. And the mistake we tend to make as preachers is spending too much or too little time on one of these three parts. I think that that's probably true. I think that there is there's a, sense a temptation. Which, yes, yeah, it's the work of like exposition. Yes, illustrating and and then how does this connect to our everyday lives? They could yeah. also there's a, a nugget in here that I think in his illustration section I think is really wise. Never be the hero of your own illustration. Like if, that, if it, that's your credo, I think if you're if it's a personal illustration, you're you're the fool or you're the one that learned. If it's an exemplary thing, yeah. make somebody else the exemplar. Right. Just because people connect with you, but so that's Friday. Uh, we do our two. We do our two, and then Sunday we finish strong. Well, I hope. I mean, and then so to prime your heart and mind, pray for your preaching and prepare your notes in one hour. So he he thinks he's excited Sunday and a little nervous. He's praying. He's sort of trying to. I be in a centered, settled place and sort of like making any final adjustments, you know, and all of that for him is like in an hour. Or so. Yeah, I don't think, uh, okay, all right, I don't, I'll, I'll, if you read Augustine's sermons, you get the sense that he's having a spiritual conversation with his folks. Matter of fact, sometimes you can almost see him working the room. You know, if you were a catty human, you were sitting one place. If you were a penitent, meaning that you <laughs> had done something wrong, hadn't quite been restored, you were somewhere else. I, I think that 
a good sermon, it flows from your life, it flows from the text, and it's a conversation with the group of people you're walking with. Now, I know some of the soundstage sermon, and I know there's a certain kind of, you know, there's a certain kind of entertainment value. And you know what? I like I I like good preaching, and I and I and I have nothing against you know being entertained while I'm listening. I, I just think in terms of um, it's just not about you. And I, I think the with the biggest I think there's a reason I like the King James version why it's called the foolishness of preaching is in part because um, there's such a danger of being up in front of people telling them what God is saying and telling them how they should live their lives. And and I do think the fact is one person once told me that, you know, during the week, this was when I was a pastor of a large church, the, the person said, you know, when you're around the church, you're, you're Bill the boss or Bill the strategic leader. He says, I think we get the we, when we get the real bill is those 20 minutes or so you're preaching to mm, us. Yeah, that's high. I mean, that's... Uh, well, it, that's, to me, it also was maybe I need to reevaluate the, my leadership style, but... <laughs> <laughs> which, but, I, you know, that was the goal, in other words. And, I, and that's, to me, not... That's not a compliment. It's not a virtue. It, it, you know, for me, I had to do that in order to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. What my fear and trembling wasn't about, I was excited or nervous, I was excited for a good sermon or whatever. It was, can I just somehow let them know that I'm a hypocrite, um, but somehow not let that cloud uh, the eternal truth of the gospel? Yeah, let me, Phil Carey, I just want to conclude with with a quotation from Philip Carey, who's a friend and an incredibly smart guy, but he wrote something in First Things in the most recent issue about Luther at 500. And he says something, he, he's connecting Luther and Augustine here. And I think this is probably, these two paragraphs are, these, this is really great, but if this, this would be a preaching book in itself. Uh, he says that um, how we've been justified by faith alone is best seen in light of Luther's distinction, distinction between law and gospel. Both the law of God and the gospel of Christ are God's word, but the former only gives us instructions while the latter gives us Christ. For the law tells us what to do, but the gospel tells us what Christ does. This distinction grows out of Augustine's insistence in his great treatise on the spirit and the letter that telling us to obey the law of love does not help us do it from the depths of our hearts. Only the grace of Christ can give us such a heart. Luther merely adds, the place to find the grace of Christ is in the gospel of Christ. A great many preachers, Protestant as well as Catholic, overlook the distinction here, thinking they can change people's lives by giving them practical advice, as if telling them how to be inwardly transformed could help them do it. Augustine already knew better. Luther's addition to Augustine's insight is merely the glad recognition that there is indeed something preachers can do to help us be transformed. Instead of advice, they can give us Christ. Amen. Amen to that. I'm not a savior and I'm not a saint The man with the answers I certainly ain't I wouldn't tell you what's right or what's wrong I'm just a singer of songs But I can take you for a walk Along a little country stream I can make you see through lovers' eyes And understand their dreams I can help you hear a baby's laugh And feel the joy it brings Yes, I do it with the songs that I sing 
I'm not a prophet and I'm not a priest. I'm not a wise man who's come from the east. I wouldn't tell you what's right or what's wrong. I'm just a singer of songs. But I can take you to a city where a man was crucified. I can tell you how he lived, and I can tell you why he died. I can help proclaim the glory of this mighty King of Kings. Yes, I do it with the songs that I sing. I'm not a great man. I don't claim to be. But when I meet my Maker and He questions me, I won't hang my head. I will stand proud and strong and say I was a singer. Lord, I was a singer. Yes, I was a singer. Of song.